Last time we spoke about the Battle of Attu, the American forces were gradually taking high grounds from the Japanese. The stalemate at Jarmin's Pass had caused severe casualties upon the Americans, but they managed to get the Japanese to withdraw from the pass by May the 17th. Jarman's Pass would receive its name after Captain John Jarman and his platoon who died fighting atop it on May the 14th. We also spoke about the silent service and how the Mark 14 torpedo was gradually fixed so the Submariners would be better equipped to strangle Japan of her lifeblood, her merchant fleet. Lastly, we spoke about the horrifying Changjiao massacre that occurred during the West Hubei Offensive and the plight of the common Chinese people during the brutal Second Sino-Japanese War. But today, we are going to finish up the story of the Battle of Attu. This episode is the Fall of Attu. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Greg Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more. So go give them a look over on YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube. Maybe you're in the mood for something different? I just released a historic film review of the classic Graveyard of the Fireflies, a real tearjerker. Also, just a friendly reminder, I myself now have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash thepacificwarchannel. And over there, you can find exclusive content, like podcasts. This month's exclusive podcast is part two of my general Kanji Ishiwara series. Check it out, it would mean a lot to me. So we had left off in the frigid northern island of Attu on May the 16th with General Brown being relieved of command of the 7th Division by the Aleutian veteran, Brigadier General Eugene Landrum. Given the evidence we have today, it seems Brown had really irritated Admiral Kincaid and his other military superiors, coupled with miscommunication, or better said, lack of any. These misunderstandings that arose saw Brown kicked out, but before he departed, he had the chance to speak to Landrum. Landrum was shocked when he saw the situation for what it really was, and he sympathized with Brown. He ordered all of Brown's plans to continue exactly as they were as a result. Now back on Attu, the northern force of Colonel Cullen was making a major breakthrough, cutting off Lieutenant Godo and Hona's forces in Germain's Pass. They were forced to abandon their positions during the night of the 16th, slipping away and successfully eluding all the American forces as they joined Colonel Yamazaki's main body at Chicka Gulf. The following morning, the Americans failed to realize off the bat that they were no longer facing any Japanese atop Charmin's Pass. This was mostly a result of the thick fog. Eventually, the lack of bullets coming down upon them brought the realization that the brutal Massacre Valley struggle, which had to this point claimed 1,100 American casualties, had thus ended. Over in the south, Colonel Wayne Zimmerman walked atop the crest of Charmin's Pass, where he stumbled upon the corpse of Captain John Germain and the bodies of his comrades surrounded by mangled bodies of dead Japanese. 
The pass, which was formerly called Massacre Holtz Pass, was renamed after Jarmin, who died on the 14th. As the pass was receiving its renaming, there was an eerie silence over it that day. On May the 18th, the various American forces finally established contact through Jarmin's Pass, and now they looked towards Chichagov, where the Japanese were looking to make a stand. Despite successfully dislodging them, the Japanese had managed to withdraw in good order, establishing yet again well-prepared defenses on the jagged heights of Chichagov Valley. Landrum decided to give the men another day to recuperate and plan out their attack, as he noted later on, I know this country, and my heart bled for the boys. I had to send them up there. I know how cold and bitter it was on the mountains, but I knew death was bitterer. On May the 18th, the American officers got together to formulate a plan to assault the Japanese. Colonel Cullen would lead one pincer, and Colonel Zimmerman the other. This was part of Major General Brown's original idea. Zimmerman's 2nd Battalions of the 17th and 32nd Infantry, with the 3rd Battalion of the 17th Infantry in reserve, would seize Clavesi Pass. Once that was taken, the southern force would then advance down Jim Fish Valley to seize Sarana Nose on the right side and Buffalo Ridge on the left, thus securing the approaches to Chichagov Harbor. Cullen's northern force and the 1st Battalion of the 4th Regiment would capture the northern slopes of Prendergast Ridge in preparation for the final assault against Chichagov. Cullen and Zimmerman shuffled their more exhausted units into reserve, allowing fresher troops to take the lead. Meanwhile, in his Kingfisher, Colonel Erickson flew reconnaissance missions almost constantly, scouting, coordinating, and occasionally dropping messages to isolated units he could find. Erickson relayed targets back to the bomber units so they could try to hit the enemy who had been eluding them heavily for days because of, again, this very deep fog. Colonel Talley's engineers were also hard at work building a road towards Engineer Hill to help move the artillery pieces further inland. Admiral Rockwell also sent a force of PT boats to carry further supplies ashore, hoping to reduce the enormous traffic jam of supplies along the beaches. During the night of May the 18th, Zimmerman and Cullen sent scouts to probe the enemy defenses at Clavesi Pass. And on the morning of the 19th, the offensive finally began, with Zimmerman sending his 2nd Battalion 17th Regiment to hit Clavesi Pass, supported by an artillery barrage, and Cullen sent his two battalions against the Chichagov Heights. By noon, the 2nd Battalion 32nd Regiment joined the southern attack. Cullen's advance found out the Japanese positions at the Chichagov Heights were quite formidable, Lieutenant Hanna had taken a position at a place called Point Abel, a mountain blocking the southern force's advance. Lieutenant Hanna was able to speak perfect English, and he was notably spending the entire time fighting at Point Abel by lobbing elaborate insults and taunts at the American invaders. For Zimmerman's men, they had the support of a ton of artillery and some aerial bombardments to soften up Clavesi Pass, allowing the men to capture a toehold on its high grounds. However, Zimmerman's men quickly found themselves embroiled in a major battle, as Dr. Paul Tetsuguchi tells us via his diary. The hard fighting of our 303rd Battalion in Massacre Bay is fierce, and it is to our advantage. Have captured enemy weapons and use that to fight the enemy closing under fog. Lieutenant Hanna and his 303rd Independent Battalion fought like madmen to hold Point Abel. The next day, Zimmerman sent some companies to perform an early morning attack to seize Cold Mountain, 
while the Japanese rained machine gun fire upon them. By noon, the American attacks had reduced the Japanese to a force of 50 men upon Nice Point, and they were tossing back continuous American attacks. Meanwhile, Cullen's men were fighting their way inch by inch over blood-stained hills. By the end of the 20th, they gained a few hundred yards. Also on the 20th, the 1st Battalion, 4th Regiment entered the fray, hitting Clavesi Pass and beginning their ascension to Predergast Ridge. General Buckner's men were able to reach the top of the ridges the following night before turning their advance towards Serana Holtz Pass. The USS Nassau launched its final mission of the day, sending some wildcats to bomb and strafe the Japanese positions in the Chichigov Harbor during the afternoon. And again, we hear this from Dr. Tatsuguchi's diary. Was strafed when noon, amputating a patient's arm. It is the first time since moving over to Chichigov Harbor that I went to an air raid shelter. Nervousness of our CO is severe, and he has said his last word to his officers and the NCOs that he will die tomorrow. Gave all of his articles away. Hasty chap, this fellow. The officers on the front are doing a fine job. Everyone who heard this became desperate and things became disorderly. After hitting the Japanese, the USS Nassau left for Adak, having lost five pilots and eight aircraft to the bitter, frigid weather. The next day, General Buckner came over to Attu to support his 4th Regiment, and he had Colonel Erickson fly him up Massacre Valley to look around Point Abel. Buckner apparently even manned one of the aircraft's machine guns, strafing the Japanese trenches. That is not typical general behavior. That day, Erickson's bombers managed to destroy every building in Chichigolf Village. Erickson himself would later that day walk over to the front lines, borrow a rifle from an infantryman, and proceed to shoot at Point Abel. For this, he was rewarded with an enemy bullet that wounded him. Buckner would go over to a field hospital to visit him, and he gave him a purple heart, which he pinned to his chest, and then he gave him a firm kick in the ass upon saying, for being where you had no business being. Which are rather rich words coming from a general who manned a machine gun on an aircraft. This is a bit of a silly story. Zimmerman's men continued to push up the mountains against the Japanese, and during the nightfall, Company E of the 32nd Regiment made a daring charge on the slopes of Point Abel, ferociously wiping out Hona's company, down to the last man. Hona would die from a gunshot wound having fought to the bitter end. To the north, Cullen's men successfully captured Hill 4, leading towards Predergast Ridge, when General Landrum suddenly ordered them to instead support the southern forces advance upon Fish Hook Ridge. Fish Hook Ridge overlooked Chichigov Harbor, still held by Colonel Yamazaki, who was suffering daily artillery and aerial bombardments. Yamazaki's men were ordered to hold the beach at all cost. To the left was Jim Fish Valley and Sarana Nose to the right. The defenses on both sides of the entrance to the harbor rendered a direct approach upon Chichigov Harbor to be quite difficult. Sailing from the west, Admiral Kawase was performing reconnaissance around the Komodorsky Islands when he reported back that the size of the American fleet at Atu was enormous. It seems this report finally sunk in with Tokyo HQ because they made their decision to evacuate the Aleutian garrisons via submarine, 
thus ending any more reinforcing. The following day, 19 G4M bombers launched from Paramashiro, and through the fog they found a patch of clear sky over Holtz Bay where they dropped packages over Chichikov Harbor. This was before they attacked the American vessels present. They lost two Bettys for their efforts, inflicting basically no damage upon the American warships. On the morning of May the 22nd, Zimmerman's force ran into the remnants of the 303rd Battalions, the 4th Company and a few survivors of the 2nd Company on Serrano Nose. Zimmerman ordered his reserve 3rd Battalion 17th Regiment to hit the peak after the big guns got to smash it for over 30 minutes. The big guns referred to 32 heavy machine guns, 14 37mm anti-tank guns, 23 81mm motors, a section of 75mm pack howitzers, and four batteries of 105mm howitzers. It was a lot of shock and awe. The bombardment devastated the entrenched Japanese, allowing the men to take Serena Nose with relative ease, annihilating just the handful of Japanese present. Meanwhile on the left flank, the 4th Regiment advanced upon Predergast Ridge, supported by artillery as well. To the north, Cullen's attack stalled due to heavy resistance, so Landrum ordered him to hold his position. Despite Landrum's recent broken leg, he assumed personal command of the southern force at this point. May the 22nd's aerial photos showed that leading a direct assault upon the valley floor would bring the southern force into an inferno of lead from the surrounding ridges that overlooked the valley. So instead, they would secure Fishhook Ridge first. Fishhook Ridge was a rugged, semicircular, snow-covered, knife-edge ridge which bent like a fishhook, around two miles towards Chichigov Harbor. The Japanese had made a defensive line of snow trenches, rifle pits, and machine gun nests connected by snow tunnels along the slopes of Washburn and Newman Peaks. These extended further south to the slopes of Brewer Peak, Buffalo Ridge, and to the floor of Jimfish Valley. The entire defensive line blocked the Holt Serana and the Holt Chichikov Passes and the entrance to Jimfish Valley. Honestly, if you wanted a visual, just try to picture in your head the Battle of Hoth. Not kidding, it probably looked pretty similar to that. Except for, you know, the futuristic weapons, of course. Zimmerman set the 2nd Battalion 32nd Regiment to seize a high plateau to the left side of Jimfish Valley. Again, before his men charged up the plateau, artillery made sure to pound the area, and again, the Americans would find mangled survivors. At this point, the Japanese situation was dire. They were desperately low on food, isolated and fighting a battle of attrition against an enemy enjoying every possible advantage. Yamazaki and his men were trapped behind their innermost defensive perimeter, but his delaying action left him in possession of a defensive firepower more concentrated than ever before. Despite the hundreds of casualties they had suffered, Yamazaki now counted with more soldiers to defend each yard of ground than before. May the 23rd began with a heavy fog and very snowy weather, preventing Zimmerman's men from launching their main attack. He was only able to send the 2nd Battalion 17th Regiment and the 2nd Battalion 32nd Regiment to relieve the exhausted 4th Regiment. Company A of the 4th Infantry had a horrible experience when 9 Japanese machine gun nests with attached riflemen pinned them down. Then an unexpected event occurred as told to us by Lieutenant Winfield Mapes. Quite suddenly, a lone figure jumped up and ran across the open snow towards the nearest Jap hole. He had an M1 and a bunch of hand grenades. He threw a grenade into the first hole and began firing. He moved right on into the circle of Jap holes around the machine gun. 
Deliberately, he walked up the edge of the holes one by one. Then he tossed a grenade. Nine times he did this. Private Fred M. Barnett is just a guy who said, Hell, I just got all fed up and disgusted, and I decided I'd get the damn thing over with. He voiced the words of a nation. When Barnett reappeared, he walked calmly downhill, signaling the two companies to advance. Barnett had charged nine successive Japanese emplacements, wiping them all out without taking even a scratch. Private Barnett received the Distinguished Service Cross for these actions. Other smaller units probed the ridge, but they were all stopped by Japanese resistance on Buffalo Ridge. To the west, Cullen's men were pressing towards a junction beneath Fishhook Ridge, finally linking up again with the southern force, planning to coordinate an offensive the next morning. That day, General Butler's P-38 Lightnings intercepted a wave of 16 Bettys, managing to shoot down nine of them while losing two Lightnings in the process. Because of these severe losses, the Japanese would not commit any more air forces from Paramishiro. On the morning of May the 24th, a coordinated assault against the ridge began. The 2nd Battalion, 17th Infantry of the Southern Force moved over the southern slopes of Prendergast Ridge, while the 3rd Battalion, 32nd Infantry, plus two companies from the 1st Battalion, 32nd Infantry, advanced along the northern slopes. Heavy Japanese machine gun fire repelled both forces back to their lines of departure on Prendergast Ridge as they attempted to negotiate their way across the Bahai Bowl. The 2nd Battalion, 32nd Infantry Regiment and the 3rd Battalion, 17th Infantry Regiment advanced up Jim Fish Valley where Japanese fire from Buffalo Ridge halted them near the southern end of Lake Corries. The Americans were fighting for every inch of snow and ice-covered muskeg they advanced upon, and the casualties were mounting heavily. Dr. Tatsuguchi's diary tells us this. Naval gun firing, aerial bombardment, trench warfare, the worst is yet to come. The enemy is constructing a position. Commander died at Umanose, Fishhook Ridge. They cannot accommodate their patients. It has been said that at Massacre Bay District, the road coming through Sector Unit Headquarters is isolated. I am suffering from diarrhea and I feel dizzy. Aerial and artillery bombardment was carried out the entire day. Unfortunately, a bit too much so, as some friendly firing did occur. Yet again, the fog a constant enemy. Eventually, Landrum was forced to order the 4th Regiment to reinforce the southern advance because of the intense resistance they were seeing. By the end of the day, two companies of Cullen's 3rd Battalion, 32nd Regiment, managed to get into the Holtz Sarana Pass. Meanwhile, the American engineers had built up a road to Engineer Hill, allowing Landrum to order every artillery piece available to be brought along it up to Massacre Valley. On the 25th, artillery and aerial bombardment softened up the approaches for the 3rd Battalion, 32nd Infantry on the left and the 2nd Battalion, 17th Regiment on the right against the pass. While their assault began, the 2nd Battalion, 32nd Infantry and 3rd Battalion, 17th Infantry resumed their assaults but were met with intense resistance from the Japanese along Buffalo Ridge. The defenders as usual enjoyed extremely good concealment, utilizing fresh snow to their advantage making them practically invisible. The 2nd Battalion, 17th Infantry, supported by the 1st Battalion of the 4th Regiment, charged through the snow and bullets seizing Newman Peak, which overlooked the pass. By nightfall, Zimmerman controlled the base of the ridge, with some isolated slopes in the hands of some scattered Japanese companies. 
It was at this point the logistics for the Americans took a turn for the worse, however. They were now much further from their beach landing areas than before, and the supplies were beginning to trickle down slower and slower. This was an indication that time was of the essence. The longer the battle went on, the more the chances were that their logistical issues would strangle them. When May the 26th rolled around, with it came some clear weather, giving the American Air Forces a chance to bomb the defensive lines with some rare precision. Again, from Dr. Tatsuguchi's diary, we received this. Hit by naval gun firing. It felt like the Misumi barracks blew up, and things lit up tremendously. Consciousness becomes vague. One tent burnt down by a hit from incendiary bombs. Strafing planes hit the next room. Two hits from a 50 caliber shell. One stopped in the ceiling and the other penetrated. My room is an awful mess from sand and pebbles that have come from the roof. First Lieutenant from Medical Corps is wounded. There was a ceremony to grant the Imperial Edict. The last line of Muninose, Fishhook Ridge, was broken through. No hope for reinforcements. We'll die for the cause of Imperial Edict. Cullen sent forces to secure the Holtzerana Pass, gradually pushing back the concealed defenders, foxhole by foxhole. Company K advanced up a 2,500-foot crest of Washburn Peak and found themselves face-to-face -face with Japanese trenches. Private Joe Martinez, with his rifle in hand, decided to walk into the enemy fire as he tossed grenades killing five Japanese. He managed to reach the crest of the ridge before collapsing from a mortal gunshot wound he received over 50 yards further down the hill. He would posthumously be awarded with the Medal of Honor for this, the only one earned on that too. The northern force eventually overwhelmed the Japanese snow trenches and seized the northwestern portion of Fish Hook. The only remaining obstacle now in the war were the trapped Japanese upon Buffalo Ridge. The 4th Regiment advanced along Fish Hook Ridge, pushing the Japanese all the way to the summit of West Peak by the end of May the 26th. The next day, the weather turned around on them, with frigid slush-like weather and the typical foggy concealment aiding the Japanese. Yamazaki took the advantage by dispatching reinforcements. Likewise, Zimmerman reinforced the advance against Buffalo Ridge, tossing the 2nd Battalion, 32nd Infantry, and Companies C and D from the regiment's 1st Battalion alongside a lot of artillery support. But yet again, the Japanese held firm, successfully halting the American advance just 200 yards from the ridge's crest. On the 28th, another assault was launched against Buffalo Ridge, supported by artillery. This time, the 2nd Battalion, 32nd Regiment managed to reach the top of the ridge, facing significantly less resistance. Yard by yard, the Americans seized most of Buffalo Ridge by the end of the day. While all of this was going on, the forces advancing along Jimfish Valley reached the southern portion of Lake Corries, where they established a defensive position to hold up for the night. Landrum expected the 29th to be the final offensive to take Chichigov. The Americans now dominated all the high grounds. The 1st Battalion, 17th Infantry held the Holtz Bay area. The 3rd Battalion, 32nd Infantry were atop Fishhook Ridge. The 1st Battalion, 4th Infantry held positions along the Holtz Bay Sarana Pass and atop West Peak. The 2nd Battalion, 17th Infantry and the 1st and 2nd Battalions of the 32nd occupied Buffalo Ridge. And the 3rd Battalion of the 17th Infantry held Jimfish Valley. Alongside all of that, four 75mm mountain guns and a battery of 105mm howitzers were placed on Hogback Ridge, while 60 artillerymen took up spotting positions on Engineer Hill to direct the bombardments. Everything was in place for a final battle, 
The Japanese had their backs to the sea, crammed into a crowded area on some low, flat ground containing only 800 soldiers left. Two Japanese soldiers had been captured a day earlier, and they confessed the remaining strength of their garrison. This prompted Landrum to order leaflets dropped over the Japanese positions. The leaflets carried a message from General Landrum to Colonel Yamazaki, informing him of his hopeless situation and asking for his unconditional surrender. Landrum also added this, that the Japanese soldierly conduct thus far has been worthy of the highest military tradition. Landrum asked Yamazaki to send a delegation to the American lines under a white flag. Landrum was trying to avoid senseless slaughter, hoping Yamazaki might prove himself to be different from the countless other Japanese commanders who chose to resist to the last man. Landrum also was trying to prod the common Japanese soldiers to see if they would surrender in the face of the inevitable. Colonel Yamazaki ordered all the documents burnt, and he personally oversaw all of his wounded men were given a fatal dose of morphine as their comrades showered them with grenades to kill them. The Japanese, knowing full well the submarines originally set to come and rescue them, were no longer coming. The American destroyer picket line was preventing this. There was nowhere to pull back to, but the Japanese did not surrender. No, Yamazaki chose to go out in a blaze of glory, fit to make the late, last samurai, Saigo Takamori, proud. Yamazaki took his ancestral katana while his men fixed bayonets. They were going to do a bonsai charge at the weakest point in the American lines during the night, the Jim Fish Valley floor. They hoped this suicidal thrust might see a breakthrough upon which they could charge towards the American position at Engineer Hill, hoping to capture their artillery to bear it down upon their enemy. And alongside this, they wanted to take all of their supplies. If they could manage to destroy the American supplies, they could theoretically then flee into the southern mountains where they might delay the Americans enough to be rescued later on. The slim hope of victory depended on lightning speed, defeat would see their complete annihilation. By nightfall, Yamazaki got his men ready, the first company and the remnants of the other two companies of the 303rd Independent Battalion took the left flank. Yamazaki, his HQ, and non-combatant forces took a rear position and the remnants of the 83rd Independent Battalion took the right flank. In the early morning of May the 29th, nearly a thousand screaming Japanese charged, as described by Nisei interpreter Peter Nakao later on. It was pitch black when the enemy began the Banzai attack. All of a sudden, the enemy was upon us. We could not see anything in the darkness except for the tracer bullets flying in every direction. Leaving bayoneted dead and wounded behind them, the Japanese went past us and continued to the medic unit station to our rear. Then they headed for an ammunition dump behind the medics. The Japanese had smashed into the reserve company B of the 32nd Regiment. The inexperienced men of that company had set up a camp dead center in Chichigov Valley. They had also withdrawn to the rear during the night to make breakfast. So their deserted positions were quickly overwhelmed and they fled for their lives to Buffalo Ridge. Yamazaki let them flee as he took his men in the direction of Engineer Hill. Yamazaki's timing was brilliant. He had taken the Americans by complete surprise, and his forces were sweeping up the base of Engineer Hill, easily getting past the infielding fire from the ridges by daybreak. The Japanese savagely swarmed a field hospital, exterminating all the sick and wounded men inside, along with his chaplain. Twelve Americans in a tent outside survived the horror by pretending to be dead, 
although they were severely trampled upon twice by charging Japanese. At this point, the American initial shock and panic had worn off, and General Archibald Arnold rallied the men. He set to work organizing artillerymen, engineers, and service troops to establish a hidden defensive position. They lacked automatic weapons, but the ragtag force, consisting mostly of the 50th engineers, met the charging Japanese with grenades and M1 Garand bullets. Eventually, the 4th Regiment came forward with automatic weapons, successfully slowing down the Japanese Banzai charge. The engineers then fixed their bayonets and engaged the Japanese in hand-to-hand combat, forcing them to fall back. Yamazaki was gunned down by an M1 Garand bullet, and his men were unable to maintain the momentum. Nearly half of the Japanese, now isolated and surrounded, began pulling the pins of their grenades as they held them to their chests. 500 men committed suicide en masse. Several Americans witnessed the Japanese squatting in a thick, shadowy cluster in the first weak gray light of the morning, seeping through the fog with one man standing and appearing to speak to the others. The thumps of detonating grenades and the agonized cries of dying men created a crescendo that died away, leaving the grounds littered with disemboweled bodies. American reporter Robert Sheroid described the scene as such. The explosive charge blasted away their vital organs. Probably one in four held a grenade against his head. There were many headless Japanese bodies between Massacre Bay and Chichigov. Sometimes the grenades split the head in half, leaving the right face on one shoulder, the left face on the other. Two bodies were burned to crisps, one atop the other fused into one charred hump. After the battle was over, the Americans erected a wooden interpretive sign at the foot of Clavesi Pass, honoring Yamazaki, a rare gesture considering the intensity of the war at the time. The Battle of Atu was done. The Americans found and interred 2,351 corpses, but guessed hundreds of more Japanese bodies were buried all over the place. They took 28 prisoners in all, mostly men knocked unconscious by shell explosions or too badly wounded to kill themselves. Scouring the landscape over the following days, a few dozen more Japanese were found hiding in foxholes, often in small groups. The U.S. soldiers called upon them to surrender, but these men usually killed themselves with grenades or opened fire to receive a bullet back. Two Japanese gave themselves up willingly, however. One was from San Francisco, the other was a short, fat, and good-humored man dubbed the Japanese 8-Ball by the GIs. He was treated kindly and even allowed to eat in the mess tents. PFC Howard Spars described the 8-Ball captured as such. Private Emerson Burgett pulled out a Jap battle flag which he held up in front of the little fellow. The Jap shook his head violently in the negative and gestured so not a doubt remained. Take it away. The inner pockets of his coat revealed an assorted and incidentally excellent collection of pornography on silk handkerchiefs. The little Jap smiled innocently as Brigitte gazed appraisingly over the collection, which, by the way, he pocketed. The Japanese lost approximately 2,850 men dead. The Americans had 549 deaths, 1,148 wounded and around 2,100 evacuated due to frostbite, trench foot, hypothermia, and other ailments. A number of lessons were learned from the battle, including new landing techniques and the necessity for rubberized, thoroughly waterproofed boots. 
I can't express the importance of that last one enough. I got a black toe once in my stupid youth drinking days when I was outdoors with some friends in like negative 35 degrees weather, in some bad boots. Does not end well. The men on that too had been given expensive thick and insulated leather hunting boots, but these become absolutely useless once they're soaked in water. After I too, improved winter kits emerged, and cases of hypothermia, frostbite, or trench foot would become very rare among American soldiers, even during bitterly cold campaigns later on in Italy and France. I'd like to take this time to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube. Over there, I just released a new podcast. It's an interview with Dave from the Cold War Channel, and the subject is the firebombing of Japan and how it evolved into the Cold War. Also, just a friendly reminder, I myself now have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel. And over there, this month's exclusive podcast is part two on my series about General Ishiwara Kanji, the mastermind behind the Mukden incident and the author behind the final war theory. Check it out, it would mean a lot to me. The bitter and bloody and cold campaign for Attu was finally over. Colonel Yamazaki decided to go out in a blaze of glory with his men, in a fashion that would make the last samurai Saigo Takamori proud.